I offer a welcome to each one today. Number of new people, some visitors, we're glad to have you with us. We've talked to some of you back there. As you already know, our pastor is absent from us today. He might be back tonight, I'm not sure of that. <clears throat> but I am a substitute preacher, so bear with me. And if I should happen to rub you the wrong way, please come back next Sunday <laughs> and hear the actual pastor and give him a chance to share with you as he preaches. I want to open with a few apologies, excuses, and caveats, maybe, uh, in case I do a bad job today. <laughs> uh, Pastor Marlin just asked me Wednesday night to preach, so it's kind of a rush. Although he did tell me last Sunday I should pull up an old sermon and maybe have it ready because he might leave. Well, he did leave. And then I was very tied up Friday night, all day Saturday, and last night with one of my part-time jobs. As some of you know, I'm a night attendant at a funeral home. So I was there. But the good thing about that is if nothing's happening, I can do my own thing. And so I did a lot of study and preparation, had my laptop and my Bible and made my notes there, but still not like being at home. So that's that. Uh, third of all, I did not get to make a PowerPoint presentation. Pastor always has his nice PowerPoints up on the screen. Uh, I didn't get that done. So you're going to have to listen the old-fashioned way today. You know, years ago, preachers even preached open air to hundreds and thousands of people, even without microphones, much less PowerPoints and the technology we have today, which is not a knock on technology, but it can be done. So I'm asking you to give me your mind, think with me, stay with me, read in your physical Bible if you have one and want to, uh, and then bear with me. I also feel like sharing a little bit of my background. Some of you knew you don't know who I am. Uh, I pastored years ago for about 20 years, mostly in Indiana. have not pastored for the last 25 years since being here. I came here, did a couple of degrees at Regent University, and none of them did me any good. <laughs> they never opened up any jobs for me, so here I am, and I, I still work two part-time jobs just to the bills. <clears throat> but I'm content. Things are well. And I uh, feel content being a, a backup here for uh, most of the speaking positions in this church. So uh, that's fine. Having said that, out of my background, if I say something today, I, I want you to know, uh, you know, if you read a book or an article in a magazine or an op-ed in a paper, you like to know who's writing that and what their background is and why they're saying what they're saying. So you might like to know a little bit of my background and what kind of provokes me to say some of the things I might say today. In 1980, in Plymouth, Indiana, my little church started a Christian school. We ran it for six years, and then I moved to Ohio and worked in another Christian school as a principal for three years, and then we moved here. I have been in private Christian education since 1980. I did a master's degree, and my thesis was promoting school choice in education. A master's in public policy from Regent University. That was in 1991. I've been promoting freedom of choice in education strongly since then. It's only now kind of becoming rather popular, even among some of our leaders and presidential candidates and so forth. In my latter years, 
I began a doctorate program in Christian education. Marlon frequently calls me Dr. Dan, and somebody once asked me, what kind of a doctor are you? <laughs> well, not much of one, I guess. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a PhD doctor, but I do have a doctorate of Christian education from Regent University, and that was built around this dissertation. And I just share this with you so you know, I can document some of the things I'm saying, might say today. This dissertation is a four-year program to help train young men for biblical fatherhood. So my dissertation is all about fatherhood, and fatherhood is coming up next Sunday, I think it's Father's Day, and today kind of leads up to that, because I won't be preaching next Sunday, so... I will touch on fatherhood somewhat today and the family and education, but it's not off the cuff. It's not just off the top of my head. It's out of years and years of my background that I'm sharing some things. So with all of that said, Pastor Martin asked me to preach. He said, pull up an old sermon. Well, I didn't like to do that. My sermons are very old. I like to write new ones. And then he suggested I follow in his flow. He has been dealing with patriarchs on the Old Testament and pulling lessons out of those. And so he suggests I might follow up on that. So I am doing that. I am in the flow of what Pastor Marlin has been preaching. He ended last week with Joseph. He's just tying in with Joseph. Joseph, you know, was one of 12. He had the coat of many colors. His brothers were jealous. He was dropped in the, the well, a hole in the ground. He was sold into Egypt. Uh, eventually, he became vice president of Egypt in charge of storing food for the famine to come. His brothers were in famine in their land. They came to Egypt, and uh, eventually the whole family moved into Egypt, and they multiplied. The key thought in that sermon was Genesis twenty nineteen and 20, which says, As for you, Joseph talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Sometimes bad things happen to God's people, but God uses it for good. And that was last week's lesson, that God is still in control, even though some bad things are happening. Some of you might have bad things happening to you, hard things, difficult things, but ultimately God is control. I kind of picked a, a title for that. I'm going to talk about Moses today. And in Hebrews, it says, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. And we have to see him who is invisible. One of the songs or courses we sang, open my eyes that I might see. Now, I believe if somebody's invisible, you can't see them. But in your heart, you can see God. And you need to see God spiritually and in your heart. And that can hold you steady through the hard times of life. Kind of funny, I heard somebody talking this weekend, maybe on BBN radio station. Uh, one of the Russian leaders some years ago, I don't know if it was... Khrushchev or somebody, when the first Russian astronaut went into space, Yuri Gagarin, I think it was, and he came back from space and he said, I didn't see God up there. Of course, the atheistic communists, they like to play on there. There's no God there. But God's invisible. Moses saw the invisible, and you and I can see the invisible. So with that said, let me do, here's the flow of things today. I'm going to deal with the story basically kind of, touch base on the story of Moses, 
through his first 40 years, into his second 40 years, not going into the third 40 years when he actually leads the people uh, out of Egypt. So we're going to do the story, then we're going to pull modern applications out of that and apply them to things in our life today and pull the lessons out of that. We're going to end up with the 10th plague that uh, God brought upon the Egyptians, which was the what? The Passover. And we'll get to that. And when we get to the Passover, we're going to blend that right into taking communion, which kind of ties in with the Passover. And we're going to invite you forward for communion. And I'll just say it now, what's in my mind, our communion is an open communion. If you're visiting with us today, if you know Jesus in your heart as your Savior, you're welcome to participate uh, in the communion with everybody else. But we'll end with that today. Pastor Marlon would say the altars are always open. Anytime you want to come to the altar to pray, you have a need, you feel moved, uh, just that you need to bow your knee, maybe here in the church and pray, you're welcome to do that. The lesson is in Exodus chapters 1 through 12. We'll be skimming through those 12 chapters. Obviously not reading 12, but touching base on aspects there. In Exodus 1, verse 6, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king who did not know Joseph. The other king, Pharaoh, and by the way, Pharaoh's big in the news today, isn't he? <laughs> I don't follow horse racing. But the Triple Crown's pretty big news, and a horse named American Pharaoh won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. And yesterday he won the Belmont Stakes. So a lot of talk all over the news about American Pharaoh was the name of the horse. Pharaoh won the crown in that. Here we have a Pharaoh. The previous one knew Joseph. He knew the history. He knew what happened. He knew how the Israelites came into his land. He favored Joseph. A king came that did not know Joseph any longer. Joseph died, so things are changing. The Israelites are multiplying. It says somewhere, it says here that they filled the land. There were lots and lots and lots of Israelites. And so the new Pharaoh got scared. He was afraid the Israelites might tie him with an enemy. They might overthrow him. They might take over the country. And so he began to make life hard for them. He gave them jobs to do. He made them build palaces and buildings. Uh, and eventually he made them, they had to make their own bricks. And he kept doing things and make life miserable for the Israelites. But they still prospered. Coming down through there, uh, verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. He brought into slavery. We're going to touch on slavery a little bit and freedom after a while. He made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I'm reading from an English Standard Version Bible in case you wonder about the translation. And what happened then? They were still multiplying. The king got so mad at them, he told the Hebrew midwives, those who helped the ladies give birth, when a baby boy is born, I want you to kill it. Kill the baby boys. Well, did the Hebrew midwives do that? Interesting verse. I'm going to come back and tie in with this. 
The girls were allowed to live, but not the boys. I guess he afraid they'd become soldiers and warriors and fighters and overthrow him. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded them, but let the male children live. Well, Pharaoh, they gave excuses for that. They went to Pharaoh and said, yeah, we did that. But the, he said the Hebrew women give birth much more easily than the Egyptian women. And one commentary I read said it might have been because the Hebrew women worked so hard, they were physically ready, and they just gave birth to their babies easily and quickly. The Egyptian women took a hard time, maybe because they were pampered and laying around the palaces and all that. I don't know. But anyway, that was their excuse to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh called his own people, and he said to all of his people, he said, anybody, if a baby boy is born to the Hebrews, throw him in the Nile River. Kill him. Kill all those baby boys. We don't want them to live. Girls okay, boys not. So then in chapter 2, a woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And after three months, and I was thinking about Donna's baby Grace back there, our newest newborn. She's about two months old. Now, she's a girl, but suppose she was a boy and named Moses, and the mother's going to hide her. This mother doesn't want to kill the baby boy, doesn't want Pharaoh's people to catch him and kill her baby boy. And she makes the little boat out of bulrushes, and she puts pitch and tar and fixes it up so it's waterproof, and she puts little Moses in the boat and puts him in the Nile. His sister stands by to watch, see what's going to happen. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe in the river. Pharaoh's daughter sees this baby boy. Pharaoh's daughter should kill the boy, should toss him in the river, turn his boat upside down, let this baby boy drown. But she doesn't. The boy's crying as she looks at him. She feels sorry for him, and she be. She plans to save him, and the sister is right there, and the sister says to her, do you want a nurse for this baby boy? And Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, I want a nurse. So the sister goes, gets the mother of Moses, and the mother becomes the nurse to raise Moses. And uh, chapter 2, verse 10, verse 9, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, notice this verse. I want to come back and hit this a little bit. Because it doesn't say how old he was when his mother turned him over to Pharaoh's daughter. But at least in the very beginning, in his young years, his mother was in charge of raising Moses. And then later, she turns him over to Pharaoh's daughter, and the daughter takes control. But there was a mother's influence for who knows how many years. It says when he grew up. In verse 11, it says, one day when Moses had grown up, there's the two grow-ups in there. He went out to his people. Let me, I'm going to jump. There's a parallel writing about Moses in the book of Acts in chapter 7. Stephen, as he's about to be stoned to death as the first martyr of the Christian faith, goes through a, a sermon to those who are going to stone him. And he goes kind of through the history of the Israelites and the Jewish people because, after all, it's his own people are going to stone him to death. And, and he comes up to modern, to the times of his day. 
but he involves Moses in here. And in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, it says, And at this time Moses was born, it's verse 20, And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Notice here it says he was mighty in words and deeds. When God calls him in the wilderness of Midian through the burning bush, Moses said, I can't talk very well. I'm not eloquent. But here it says he was mighty in words. One commentary believes he didn't possibly didn't know the Hebrew language real well because he spent all of his time in the Egyptian palace. And then later on, he became more fluent in Hebrew and in leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. He was mighty in both words and deeds. But the point I want to point out to you, verse 22 of Acts 7, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty in words and deeds, when he was 40 years old. He was 40 years old when he went out in the fields and saw an Egyptian fighting with a Hebrew, and he wanted to defend his people, the Hebrews. Somehow he knew the Hebrews were his people, and he killed the Egyptian. Tried to hide him in the sand, or did hide him in the sand. The next day he goes out again, and he sees two Hebrews arguing with each other, and he talks to them, what are you arguing about? Your brothers, you're, you're part of the same clan, tribe, nation, race. And they they rebel at him. They don't like him butting into their life. And they say, are you going to kill one of us too, just like you killed the Egyptian? So then it became known that he had killed an Egyptian. So Pharaoh comes after him, or he thinks Pharaoh's going to come after him. So he runs away to Midian, and he goes out into the desert. So he's 40 years old when that happens. Some, some different things in here. Let me finish the book of Acts. I may have to come back to that again, but I want to point this out while I'm here. When he's 40 years old, it came into his heart. In Exodus, it's not very clear about the spirituality of Moses. In Acts, Stephen says it came into his heart. Now, why did it come into his heart? To visit his brethren. I think his mother's teaching and training let Moses know where he really belonged, where his roots were, and they were not in the Egyptian System, the Egyptian nation, they were in the Hebrew people. So it came into his heart, or you could even say the Holy Spirit put it in there, but I think he combined and worked with his mother. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So he here, even as he's killing that Egyptian, He's feeling that God has called him to help deliver his people. But his people don't notice that. So he goes off into the wilderness for 40 more years before he ends up coming back to lead the people out. Now, with all of that said, when did he grow up? Was he 40 years old when he grew up? When did his mother finish teaching him? When he was 10? 12, 15, 20, 30? We don't know that. But at the very least, we can be sure of this thing, that his mother laid a spiritual training and foundation within the heart of Moses. His mother was his first teacher. Hi, moms. You moms know... <laughs> 
You're the first teacher your child has. And you're one of the most important teachers your child has. So he's 40 years old. He flees to Midian. I'm about to go into some present-day applications, but let me jump into Hebrews now, because Moses surfaces again in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 11, the chapter of faith, we find Moses beginning in verse 23 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's eating. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, <laughs> there's the grown up again, when he was grown up. Don't know when that was. It's in Jewish culture, as I've read in times past, young men kind of became adults at around 30 years of age. Jesus did not begin preaching till he was 30. So maybe he wouldn't have been respected as an adult until he was 30. Maybe Moses was 30. It's all speculation. But the point is, somewhere in there, he grew up and he moved from, how <laughs> do you say it, homeschooling <laughs> into Egyptian training and education. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's my thought. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. We can endure any difficulty that comes our way in life if we can keep faith in the invisible the invisible God God is a spirit can't see him but because he's a spirit he can be everywhere at the same time around the world every missionary every Christian in every country of the world the Holy Spirit can be there and we can all lock into the invisible and that can hold you steady by faith he kept the passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them so those verses in the new testament from uh, acts chapter 7 with stephen into hebrews talk about the spirituality of moses so he fled to midian i want to stop here i want to go back into this first part of the story and pull out two lessons for you and remember now, I'm speaking out of my background. First of all, let's talk about education. Moses began to be schooled. No, hang on to that. Before that, there's another lesson I want to deal with. Going back earlier, the midwives disobeyed the king. I don't know how you all feel. But bear with me as I present this point. Christians do not always have to obey every authority. There are times for disobedience to earthly authority. Is that true? What did the midwives do? The king said, kill them. They said, no, we're not going to do it. They disobeyed. Other examples? What about the three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel? 
The king said, bow your knee to this golden, to this idol that I have made. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego stood up and said, we're not going to do it. They did not bow their knee to the pagan idol. In the same book of Daniel, Daniel was told not to pray. Don't you be praying to this God. He went back to his open window and he knelt down and he prayed anyway. Knowing those lions were hungry. He still prayed. Peter, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, was once thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. He was let out. There are different stories. I didn't pick out exactly all the details. Some, one time God opened the gates and let him out. Another time the authorities let him go. When they let him go, what did they tell Peter? They said, Peter, we're going to let you go. But don't you preach in the name of Jesus anymore. What did he do? <laughs> he went out, Jesus! He started preaching in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we may have to disobey earthly authority in order to obey the higher authority. And that's the principle of Christian living. I'm not talking about anarchy. Not talking about bitterness and nasty disobedience, but as the midwives, it says the midwives feared God and they did not do what the king wanted them to do. We have sometimes a conflict in authority and we have to go to the higher authority. You are to obey the higher authority, saints of God, Nazarenes and other Christian people. You are to obey God before earthly leaders, no matter who they might be. It could be governmental officials. It could be church leaders. If Jim Jones asks you to take the Kool-Aid, you're going to do it? Hello? Earthly leaders must be in accord with the basic principles of God. Romans 13 and 1 is a, a, a chapter about government. It, says, it tells us to obey the authorities. But you know what it also says? What kind of authorities are there? It says authorities are those who... Let me get it exactly... They're against evil and they're for good. Now that's the kind of authorities we can obey. Romans 13 and 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. No proper authority except from God. And those that exist must have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? That sounds like you should obey anything anybody tells you. Some dictator tells you to do something contrary to God. If you're a nurse in a hospital and the doctor says, commit this abortion, kill this baby, it's a time to disobey. Saints of God need some steel in their backbone sometimes to stand up for truth, stand up for God, stand up for righteousness even if sometimes it brings hardship on us. Could it be that that time would come in America? It's that way in Iran. Preacher in jail right now in Iran for preaching the gospel. And other countries persecute the Christians for their faith. Could happen here. Here's the kind of rulers we can obey. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Verse 3, Romans 13 and 3. That's a good kind of ruler. He's not a terror to good conduct. You do good. You promote good living, clean living, holy living, godly living. 
Don't worry about the rulers, but they are a terror to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Do that which is good, and you will see, receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword in vain. We are to fear God, first of all and above all. James Madison, one of our great Virginia founding fathers, writing in a continuation of the Virginia Declaration, Declaration of Rights, talks about obedience and so forth, nature of freedom. Uh, let me break in here. The religion then of every man must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man. It is the right of every man to exercise it as these may dictate. Skipping down, this duty is precedent both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. And here's a key sentence from James Madison. Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he must be considered a subject of the governor of the universe. We're to be a subject to the governor of the universe. And then we can be a good citizen in society. If we don't, if we just blindly obey everything anybody tells us to do, we can become, as one little book I had years ago was called, A Nation of Sheep. Blindly following some ungodly leader, maybe over the cliff. Let's talk about education briefly. This is still in our lesson, right? Moses' mother became his first teacher. Training the mind, heart, and character of children, who should be primarily responsible for training the minds, the hearts of our children? Who should be responsible for training your mind and your heart? Primarily, it is parents, not the government. The biblical principle there. I'm not out of the Bible. Father's Day is coming. In my dissertation on fatherhood, I went through many, many, many books on fatherhood, and I pulled out five primary characteristics of biblical fathers. Those five characteristics are, one, to be a provider, to be a protector of the family, to be a spiritual leader of the family, to be an educator. Ephesians 6 and 4 says fathers are to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. doesn't even say mothers. It says fathers. I propose to you fathers here today, and to those who are not here, that you or the overseer of your house to help direct the education, training, development of your children. We may delegate that to mom, especially if mom's able to be a full-time mom, and that's nothing to be despised. Neither is it if a mom has to work outside the home sometimes, but sometimes we have to delegate it, but nevertheless we're to oversee it. Galatians 4, 1 and 2, it says the father appoints the time of the tutor. 
I'm not taking time to turn there, but Galatians 4, 1 and 2, if you want to write that down, read it some other time. A father can send his children to a tutor or to a school or to somewhere, but the father sets the time. The father's still in charge. The family is still in charge. We live in a time today in our country and even around the world where governments, secular, humanistic, anti-God, non-biblical governments want to take control of our children and bust up the family because that's Satan's desire. It always has been to break up the family, break up the home, grab the minds of children and train them in a no-God atmosphere. You need to be aware and resist that. God gave children to you. He did not give your children to the state. The secular humanists want nothing more than to control the education of all children from the cradle to the university. World Magazine, Christian Worldview News Magazine. It's an article. Let me just read you a little bit. What better way to slowly, progressively change the country's mindset than to have control over our children's minds by having full control of the education system? Twelve years of secular humanistic education can have a tremendous influence on the thinking of another generation. Progressives have already infiltrated our school systems with revisionist history and pseudoscience. Wouldn't it be nice to just have one national world mindset and stop having to deal with all these pesky states and localities pushing the individualism thing with differing political views and mindsets? Think you'll escape through private or homeschooling? Standardized tests are now being re redesigned to be in alignment with Common Core. By a stunning quirk of fate, the chief architect of Common Core, David Coleman, is also president of the college board. The new PSAT rolls out this year, and the new SAT, Scholastic Aptitude Test, students take to get into college, no matter where you go to school in secondary life, you're going to take your standardized test and those scores are going to go to your college to show how smart you are or how well you've been educated at least or how well you've been trained. They go into play in 2016. If you want little Johnny to go to college, you'd better, whatever you teach him at home, he had better be ready to affirm on test day that Columbus was a bad guy and global warming is man-made. Beware of deep-seated, deep-pocketed men bearing gifts. Federal government is taking control of our local school systems. Our public school, <laughs> I have to share my little pet peeve here, I guess, if you want. Public schools are no longer public schools, folks. I don't know what you think. They're not like when I went to school, which was 60 years ago. My wife and I have been married 50 years, 60 years ago. The government has gradually been taking more and more control and the federal government's handing out dollars to cause local schools and state systems to accept grants and uh, gifts from in, in terms of money, but they have to comply with national standards. We're moving to a national education system. The biblical point is parents are responsible. Moses' mother had the greatest influence in his life. Let's move on, okay? Let's get off of that.
What's the rest of the story? Moses goes to Midian. He runs away from Pharaoh. He's scared for his life. He's getting away. He ends up uh, marrying a daughter of Jethro. He ends up being a shepherd. He's taking care of sheep. He, and one little phrase in those verses there says he's content. He's content. He got away from all that mess back in Egypt. Nice little quiet life out here in the country, taking care of sheep. Got my wife, a couple of, of boys I'm raising. And uh, then one day, chapter 3 of Exodus, Moses keeping the flock. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. That's the burning bush on fire, but never burning up. It just maintained its fire. That's the story. And God spoke to Moses. A couple of lessons here. The bush doesn't get consumed, and God's talking to Moses. God can talk to us. What about the bush being consumed? Uh, I was reading one commentary. He, he brings this into play about the burning bush. He says, the burning bush might be likened to the church, possibly. The church is the bush that's on fire. The church goes through persecution. The church goes through hard times. The church is in trouble in many places around the world. But it never gets consumed. It will always maintain itself. It will always exist. There will always be a church of God. There will always be a Catholic church. <laughs> that comes out of our Sunday school lesson. Debbie was teaching Catholic with a small c. Church of God with a small c. Catholic means universal around the world. A universal church. The total family of God. There will always be God's people no matter how many heads get cut off, no matter how many people are persecuted, martyred, put in jail for the faith, there will always be a church until Jesus comes again. It's not consumed. G.K. Chesterton has a, a famous quote. I've used it before in Sunday school, but I like it. It's neat. It's, he says, five times in history, the church has almost been annihilated. No, he says it almost went to the dogs. And then he says, but every time, the dogs died. <laughs> The dogs died, not the church. The church might seem to be in decline, in decay, in trouble, but the dogs will die and the church will go on. God's church lives forever. You can live forever. You might have your personal fires that are burning in your life, your troubles. Uh, our friend here about to face surgery, that's a fire for her, but you will not be consumed. It will not burn you up. You will prosper through it. See him who is invisible. Endure. Endure your hard times. Many of you today have been through hard times. My wife and I have been through hard times. You don't live 50 years of marriage and I have some hard times. We had some difficult times. We had some torturous times. But we have endured seeing him who is invisible and so can you as Moses did. Moses makes all kind of excuses. God calls him. Uh... God's talking to him. God wants him to go lead the people out. He makes all kinds of excuses. You know, who am I? Why are you calling me? I can't speak. I'm kind of slow of tongue. And God, of course, gives him Aaron his brother. Well, okay. God even gets angry with Moses. Like, shut up, Moses. Quit making excuses. You got to do this. And then he sends Aaron to be his spokesman. And that goes through chapters 4 and into 5. And Aaron becomes his spokesman. And then they end up down in, down in Egypt and they talk to the leaders of Israel. And they show some signs and wonders that God gives them, like dropping his rod. It becomes a snake. He grabs the handle of the snake and it comes back to a rod. God says, put your hand inside your vest and pull it out. It comes out, it's leprous and white. He says, put your hand back in again. It comes out and it's clean and whole. So those are some signs that God gives to give authority to Moses that, first of all, God's talking to him and God's going to lead the children of Israel out. 
5.1, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They begin to talk to him. He says, Pharaoh, God wants to let my people go. I want you to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is this God? And you can Google Egyptian gods if you want. I did briefly all kinds of idols and statues here and there. The sun god, the funeral god, uh, this god. He talked about one god who eats the disc of a sun and spits it up and gives birth again. All kinds of things about the Egyptian paganism. Uh, and Pharaoh thinks, this is just another God. I'm not going to listen to this God. Pharaoh thinks the people are lazy. They just want to get away, go off for a vacation, get out of Egypt, quit laying bricks and building buildings for them. Maybe they help build pyramids. I don't know what they built. but uh, So Pharaoh makes things harder in their life, and he continues to make things harder. Moses does different miracles, or God does miracles through Moses. Uh, Pharaoh doesn't listen. Uh, and then the ten plagues happen, Okay. The first three, two or three plagues, the magicians of Egypt are able to do the same thing. First of all, Moses hits his rod on the river now, turns to blood, and all the fish die and everything, and you have a bloody mess, right? Well, the magicians somehow are able to do the same. I don't know where they found more water to turn to blood, but it says in the Bible the magicians were able by their tricks and magic to do something similar. And then uh, we come to frogs. This is in chapter 8, verse 2. Uh, there's a plague of frogs that comes up all over Egypt. The magicians do the same thing. And then it goes to gnats in verse 16 of chapter 8. The magicians no longer can do that. They run out of their tricks and power. They can't reproduce gnats. And then we go to flies. And when we come to flies filling all the land of Egypt, it says God sets apart the land of Goshen, which are the Israelites. Uh, and every time Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let him go, and then when the plague is, is taken away, he says, oh, change my mind, can't go. Okay, I'll let you go. Nope, nope, you're not going to go. Yeah, you can go. Nope, you can't go, and back and forth. There comes a plague on livestock, chapter 9, chapter nine verse 2. Chapter 9, verse 9, soot turns to dust, which turns to boils on all the people. You imagine living with boils all over your body and sores breaking out, but the land of Goshen, the Israelite people, are not bothered with that. In 9.16, it says that God raised Pharaoh for a purpose. God had Pharaoh there for a purpose, to show his power and his might through him. Uh, hail and thunderstorms and lightning come. Uh, big chunks of hail coming down, killing everything that's around, livestock, people that are outside, and so forth. After that, locusts come. The locusts eat up whatever might be left of the, of the food and the harvest. The ninth plague then is chapter 21, and that is darkness over all the land. And every time Pharaoh says, yes, but no. 10.21, let me turn and physically read. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 10, verse 21. Stretch out your hand toward heaven. There may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. There was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you and let your fox and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings. See, sometimes Pharaoh would say, Okay, you, the men can go, not women and children. Eh, I can't do that. Okay, men, women, children go, but not your cattle and your goats and your sheep. Nah. Moses said, I want everything or nothing to be able to go. Verse 26, our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God. But one of the thoughts was that in Egypt they could not sacrifice, like if they wanted to kill a lamb, sacrifice a lamb as God wanted. Certain animals were, 
were sacred to the Egyptians, and if they did that in Egypt, the, they would just make the Pharaoh even more angry at them for sacrificing sacred animals. So they need to get out of Egypt to be able to do their own sacrifices. Verse 28, Pharaoh says, get away from me. Take care, never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And 11 and 1, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And of course, you probably all know that was the Passover. He was going to kill the firstborn son in every family. That would have been me. I was the firstborn of five in my family, five, four siblings, and me made five children. The firstborn was to die. Uh, 11, 4, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great, great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. <laughs> Could take that and make a whole sermon out of that. The Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel between the world and the church. In reading studies like George Barna and other people, one reason a lot of people leave in the church today, the church is so much like the world, they don't see any difference. The worldly church not going to attract the real people of God. We do not want to be a worldly church. We want to be in the world, want to have an effect on the world, want to be salt and light, but we don't want to be like the world in philosophy and thinking and habits of life. There's a distinction. So the first one's going to die, and how is God going to save the Israelites? Well, in 12 and 1, 12 and 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household. If the household's too small for a lamb, he can combine with his neighbor. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. I'm sure you can project that up to Jesus, the Lamb of God, without blemish, who also died for us. You may take it from sheep or goats. You shall keep it till the 14th day of the month. And then at twilight, you're to kill your lamb. You shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Another verse says they're going to dip hyssop in the blood. I guess hyssop, some kind of a flower or brush or bush, and they're going to kind of paint the blood on the two doorposts and across the top. And then they're to stay in the house and not go outside until the Passover is ended. The blood shall be, I'm jumping to verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Jump into verse 29. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, get out of here. <laughs> Both you and the people of Israel, go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, and have gone 
as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. So Pharaoh's finally said, just take everything. Get out of here. We can't take any more. And jumping to the end of that, verse 15, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. So God brought 10 plagues. The last plague was the deciding factor. And now Moses was able to lead the people out of slavery and into freedom. Quickly, I'm just going to touch quickly because I want to let you go soon. Two modern applications, actually three. Let me just, I'm not going to develop these. They could be developed later. One is God talked to Moses. The Holy Spirit needs to talk to you. God can talk to you and I today. He can tell you things to do. But his, his Holy Spirit should always be in line with the word. People go off into extravagances saying, God told me to do this. God told me to do that. You need to be careful. You should always balance it with the word of God. They go together. God will never tell you to do anything contrary to the word of God. Like some many mentally ill people, God told me to kill my mother. God told me to kill my baby. God doesn't do that. You have to balance it. If you have questions about what God's telling you to do, talk to pastor. Talk to leaders in the church. Talk to mom and dad. Young people, you need to find what God wants you to do. Talk to God. God wants to talk to you. God has jobs for you to do. He has a calling for you. He had a calling for Moses from childhood all the way up. God wants to do something with your life. Young people, there's a cause in this world. There's something to live for besides money and fame and fun and pleasure. I always like the phrase when David's fighting Goliath and his brothers criticizing him. Who do you think you are, you little runt? Do you think you can go out and kill this giant? And David said, is there not a cause? Isn't there something to fight for? I read about young people going to join the jihad, join with the Islamists because they want to be a suicide bomber. They want to kill somebody. They think that's a cause. There's a cause of Jesus Christ. There's a cause of the invisible God. There's a cause of righteousness and biblical teaching contrary to fight the devil and Satan and evil. Join the cause. Find your calling. Talk to God. Let God talk to you. Second point, freedom. The Israelites found freedom. God wants us to be free. Freedom is a natural right, God-given right, for everybody ought to be free. Nobody ought to ever make a slave out of anybody else. There ought not to have been slavery. Early America shouldn't have had slavery. But it's been a worldwide thing. It's been from the Old Testament all the way through. Nations around the world have had slavery. It doesn't make it right. And certainly there's no biblical justification for that. But we do have modern slavery. Nazarene Magazine, Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, Freedom for the captives, efforts to end human trafficking. Today and around the world and even in America, human trafficking, people selling girls and boys for sex slaves, house slaves. A long time ago, I did some Sunday night lessons, social justice. Remember we had a DVD? There was an Egyptian girl made a slave in a house. Not a sex slave, but just a household servant slave. And people kept her there with minimum, maybe no wages, and she was actually a slave, I think, in California somewhere, here in this country. Not to be, if you can do anything. There are mission, mission organizations and groups working for freedom, religious freedom. Religious freedom has been in America to a great extent. We need religious freedom. You need to fight for religious freedom. You need to work for religious freedom. You need to resist temptations by our governments to restrict our religious freedom. Would you like to be a slave? Would you like to be persecuted? Would you like to live in communist China when you can only have one child or have to go to a house church? 
Sometimes I think, well, you know, the church has flourished in China, even under persecution. So we should want persecution here. Maybe the church will flourish, right? No. We don't want to ask for persecution, do we? We want to be free. Religious freedom. Oh, I had a lot of notes on that. 75% of the world's people, over 5 billion people, live in countries that have strong restrictions on religious freedom. People should be free even to not believe. We need to allow that. And freedom should never be forced on anybody. I mean, religion should never be forced on anybody. People can be free to believe anything as long as they're not killing somebody else over it. And last of all, let me end. Blood. The blood on the doorpost of the Passover saved the people. Today, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed as a sacrifice for your sins. From the Garden of Eden to today, and there's lots of scriptures, I'm sure you believe that. But let me just wrap it up with that thought. When Adam and Eve, first of all, were naked in the garden before sin and not ashamed. After sin, they were ashamed. They, they got fig leaves and covered up a little bit. When God came in, he killed some animals, apparently, and took skins of animals and made coats for them. Some people think that's the first blood sacrifice, even for Adam and Eve's sins. And then Abraham, the ram to be sacrificed, and all down through the Old Testament, animal sacrifices until the Lamb of God came, Jesus Christ, 33 years walking on earth, Three years preaching, and then he's crucified on the cross, sheds his blood so that you and I can have cleansing, forgiveness, and brought into a right relationship with the invisible God. Today, the blood is there. But I was thinking it this way. You kind of have to take the hyssop of your faith and dip it into that blood and apply it to your heart for it to be effective for you. It's not automatically applied to everybody. People are not automatically saved. You have to respond to the call of God and make a decision to give your life to God, to ask his forgiveness and believe it can happen because the blood of Christ pays the penalty for your sin in the eyes of our Heavenly Father.